First Ignite, artificial intelligence software built for the modern tech transfer office. The First Ignite AI platform helps streamline tech transfer activities, including disclosures, non-confidential summaries, and identifying licensing partners while providing the professional contact information of over 180 million professionals, turbocharging your office's marketing activities. Get started for free at firstignite.com. You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. Today, we're continuing our exploration of artificial intelligence in our ongoing AI series. In this episode, we're diving into the captivating world of generative AIs. From ChatGBT to DALL-E, these AI technologies are rapidly changing the creative landscape. We'll explore what they can and can't do, as well as how they're poised to shape our future. Many startups are already diving into this field, and we're here to guide you on understanding the technology, navigating IP barriers, and devising effective monetization strategies for working with AI chat. Joining us today is a seasoned expert in the technology transfer field, Jonathan Gortat. Jonathan is the Director of Licensing and Strategic Alliances at Stanford University's Office of Technology Licensing with more than 15 years experience in tech transfer. Prior to joining Stanford, he was Assistant Director at the University of Illinois Chicago Office of Technology Management and in various roles at Purdue Research Foundation in tech transfer and working on a pre-seed investment fund. In addition, he has more than five years industrial pharmacy research and project management experience. He also has extensive experience in pharmaceutical and chemical unit operations and analytical methods associated with the pharmaceutical industry. He holds an MBA from the Cranert Graduate School of Management at Purdue University and a Baccalaureate of Science degree in Chemical Engineering from Purdue University. Welcome, John. I'm so excited to have you here on the air. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here as well. Yeah, and we have a really interesting topic to talk about today, generative AI technologies. And these certainly are technologies that are on the rise and they hold incredible potential to transform a variety of different industries. So, John, I wanted to start off by asking you, can you give us an overview of the current landscape and talk to us a little bit about some of the most exciting developments maybe you've observed and how you see these technologies evolving in the near future? Yeah, that's a great way to start. And I'll I'll divide it up into to two large prongs. I see large companies like Google, NVIDIA, OpenAI, Microsoft, those types, those those folks are shaping the state of the art with, with the newest models that are out there. And then on the other hand, you have universities, startups, and the open source community that are continuing to push the limits of that state of the art with uh, the latest and greatest innovations. Uh, right now, I see a lot of AI models that are trained on broad data using self-supervision at scale, and then they're adapted to a wide range of uh, downstream tasks. Um, later, these are foundation models, and, and that's how most modern generative AI is powered. 
Um, so as an example of that, ChatGPT might write you an essay. Uh, you could use Midjourney or Dolly to create a, a really great illustration. Music LM could create the, the best advertising uh, jingle or advertisement you've ever heard. Um, and for startups, generative AI can, can generate a lot of questions and be realistic. And at the early onset, when, when cash is king for startups, it can replace some employees. Um, and that tech change is really abrupt. So at Stanford, there's there's been a number of fundamental projects that have enabled generative AI. Um, Image Lab from Feifei Li's lab uh, is a database designed for use in visual object recognition software. They hand annotated more than 15 or 14 million images for the project to indicate um, what's pictured and at least a million of the images. Um, they have bounding boxes that are provided. Um, and you can go on Wikipedia and look at ImageNet. Another example is a, a tool set for NLP from Chris Manning's lab. Um, they've been widely licensed uh, both under open source, GPL, and under commercial terms. And the most exciting developments we've seen recently, I think, are in the health healthcare space. So we've licensed several platforms to shorten the time and cost for drug delivery, uh, drug discovery, therapeutics development, creation of stable mRNA vaccines, and, and personalized medicine. And I, I see more coming down in the future in the pipeline uh, to inform cancer treatment for, in particular for those with metastatic types of cancer, um, skin cancer detection, heart disease management. Um, I could also see a future where generative AI is used to draft denial appeal letters. You know, you look at a whole bunch of patient records and all sorts of complicated medical policies and guidelines in a far more faster and cost-effective way than human staff. Um, you use that generative AI to consume all those policies and guidelines and medical history and maybe even generate a prior authorization um, and get your insurance insurance provider to pay for something that they wouldn't have before because you didn't have time to digest the thousands of pages of policies, uh, what is needed to, to generate that PA. Um, on the more public-facing side, you could see it for enhanced customer service or maybe even in the tourism industry. Um, right now, you know, when, when people contact different agencies to inquire about what services or resources are available, there's humans on the other side, and they have to rapidly access all sorts of information um, to satisfy the questions that people ask. And we've all been through the automated ones that are there right now where you answer a question and they don't understand you correctly. Um, but I think those days are, are shorter for the shorter rather than the longer. You can imagine, um, you know, government public services, find out how about those are available. Um, tourism industry, hey, I want to go somewhere here. Can you take me there? And you call up your tourism bureau and it's an AI prompt and it could happen. Um, I think I saw a study, I think it was KPMG that did the study recently. Uh, they found about two thirds of, of the US executives believe that generative AI is gonna significantly impact their organization within three to five years. On the contrary, uh, I think 60% of them said they're still one to two years away from deploying that first generative AI application. So companies see that the boat has left the dock, but they're waiting to buy their tickets for the next boat. They, they see the paradigm shift coming. Yeah, it's really fascinating. It's incredible what's going on in this area. And I want to talk a little bit more about startups and researchers and how they're increasingly experimenting with AI chat and related technologies to create new content. 
So talk to us about some notable examples or use cases where generative AI has made a significant impact and how others can benefit from these innovations while also respecting IP rights. Yeah, so I, I see a future where we're using generative AI um, in addition to human oversight and some other complementary technologies, traditional mach machine learning is probably gonna be at the core of consumer business. Uh, a couple of recent examples I've seen, NVIDIA released a service called BioNemo. I'm hoping it's called BioNemo or not BioNemo, uh, based <laughs> on Finding Nemo, probably. That's my guess. Yeah, probably Finding Nemo, yeah. And uh, another foundation model called MegaMobLart uh, that aids drug discovery by identifying the ideal target, designing the molecules, uh, not only small molecules, but proteins as well, and predicts the interactions in the body to develop the, the best drug candidate. You could even see that later being used for personalized medicine. Um, oil and gas companies are using AI to predict drilling the best drilling paths for new wells. Uh, here at Stanford, I've seen researchers using AI to sense earthquake intensity. And these arrays are so sensitive, they can detect sinkholes, landslides, and where urban infrastructure might fail in the near future. So there's, there's a lot out there. The pattern recognition capability of of AI to extract key insights from data sets is really valuable. Uh, it does have pitfalls, um, but we could talk about those later. And now I'll mention a couple of Stanford startups that are AI-based. Uh, Genesis Therapeutics is, is pioneering some predictive AI technologies to commercialize breakthrough treatments for patients suffering from uh, multiple severe diseases. And then they, they have a, a state-of-the-art generative and predictive AI platform, I think they call it GEMS, um, to accelerate small molecule drug discovery. And then on the vaccine side, there's Inceptive Nucleics. Um, they're looking at the next generation of RNA molecules through a combination of uh, scalable experiments and deep learning. So there's a lot going on. There's a ton going on. And, you know, you've done a really good job talking about the tremendous potential of some of this generative AI, like the chat GPT and the DALI. Um, and, you know, it has a lot of potential, but yeah, it's also got hurdles, which you've alluded to as well. So can you walk us through first um, some of the key strengths that make generative AI so promising? Yeah, there, there's, there is definitely a lot of strengths and, and definitely some drawbacks as well. So first and foremost is, is rapid generation of content. Um, there's a lot of potential to eliminate busy work, so quote unquote, from jobs. So you can imagine AI being used to create a first draft of a manuscript or an artistic work that's later refined by a human. Um, that ability to automatically create compelling content on demand that's personalized, that's versatile, and it's accessible, and at scale, that's huge. Um, smaller models sometimes are trained on, on more domain-specific data, and they, they can often outperform larger models, so you want to keep that in mind as well. Um, for example, there's a, a group at Stanford that trained a small model, PubMed GPT 2.7, on biomedical abstracts, and they found it could answer medical questions significantly better than a generalist model that's about the same size. And so when we're thinking about this, you want to think if the data you're using is, is scalable, if it's efficient, and if it's private. Um, data generators, synthetic data generators, can create enough data to stand in for millions of individuals. And once they're trained, those synthetic data generators can create hundreds of thousands of records in minutes, as opposed to months or years. Um, and synthetic data that you're using has a lot of privacy because it doesn't contain any real personal information. And it can be further 
uh, imbued with statistical privacy protections along the development pipeline. So there, there's a lot that you can say for strengths of, of AI. Yeah, definitely. And now I want to flip and talk about some of the challenges. You also mentioned pitfalls that perhaps businesses and researchers need to overcome when working with these super innovative tools. Yeah, uh, I think you, you want to think about false narratives or, or hallucinations, some people call them. There's also the, the perpetuation of bias. Uh, there's a number of ethical issues intentional randomization and, and lack of confidentiality. Uh, right now, the, the Northern District of California is a, a hotbed for lawsuits. Um, if you looked at two weeks in late June and early July of this year, there was dozens of cases filed in the Northern District. And there are around several different issues around tort claims, copyright claims, trademark claims, fair use. Uh, I think there's some privacy claims, right of publicity using facial recognition, a lot of issues that are being challenged right now in the courts. Um, having the ability to fact check results generated by AI and not being overly reliant on those tools is, is critical. Um, in, in the Goldsmith case, the, the court narrowed the, the standard finding that a use which adds some new expression, meaning, or message is alone insufficient to satisfy that first fair use factor. Um, and so far, it, it looks like the, the courts have been reluctant to impose a lot of liability on AI developers and have some skepticism over some of the, the plaintiff's claims so far. But we'll see. Time will tell. Yeah, absolutely. And why don't we keep a little bit more on this topic of IP? And you mentioned fair use, you mentioned copyrights, you mentioned trademarks. Um, are there other IP barriers and challenges that you see that entrepreneurs, creators, and companies face when developing or using AI chat and Dolly? Or and how do you think they can navigate these hurdles effectively? Yeah, for, so for the researchers we're working with the universities, I think you can really teach them about the fair use doctrine and um, the, the four main tenets of it and, and determine what warranties exist about the content that the, the generative AI was trained upon. Um, and really looking at whether it reassures that the guardrails are already in place to prevent third-party copyright infringement claims. So with copyright infringement, you have AI models that can generate content that may unintentionally infringe upon other copyrighted text or images. And to avoid that, you got to ensure that they're trained on data that's in the public domain or which you have the appropriate licensing or, or usage rights for. Um, other strategies around that is you can implement filters or, or post-processing steps to identify and, and remove potentially infringing content. Uh, on the data ownership side and privacy side, those data uh, used to train the generative AI models can come from a lot of different sources, and determining data ownership can be very complex. Um, so you want to clearly define those usage rights and data ownership in your data acquisition agreements. Be transparent about those data sources and the rights. And honestly, consider using open access or public domain data when you can, uh, at least in the U.S. I know some of the, the laws around data are different, especially in Europe. Um, you want to ensure compliance with those laws, uh, obtain in informed consent for data usage, especially in the, the healthcare industry, and anonymize or de-identify the data where necessary. So I always say double check that the 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 faculty and the researchers you're working with are, are giving the whole truth. I don't think they're intentionally trying to, you know, pull the wool over your eyes, but sometimes the data policies aren't exactly clear. So you really want to look at those for yourself. Um, 
And it's, it's, you know, if you're uncertain about the landscape around the copyright of the material, I always ask, you know, what is the source of the code? What underlying licenses are there? What is the provenance of the data? Are you using um, outside data outside the terms of the, any open source license that you may use there? Um, and I guess one last big thing is, is bias present in the training data it can result in biased decisions or discriminatory outcomes. So you need to be careful there as well. You want to be able to collect and curate diverse, um, unbiased, high quality data sets. It's crucial to do, but it's, it's really challenging as well. So develop some guidelines um, around code of conduct for whatever industry you're in, if it's academia or if you're in a, a specific sector of, of the economy. Stay informed about the changes and the evolution of IP law and different, different ethical considerations and adapt your practices along the way. Um, and if you are going to have AI-generated content that's commercially developed and licensed, make sure you have an appropriate licensing model or royalty sharing model for the, the rights holders or creators in place as well. So, John, I wanted to ask you, you know, there's so much going on in this area, just even keeping up with IP rights and privacy and all this. I mean, and it's a really an evolving field. How, how do you do that? And, and what recommendations do you have for folks in tech transfer offices to, to try and keep on top of all the changes and everything that's going on? Yeah, I would say, you know, check check your viral blogs that um, keep up to date on AI, uh, monitor some of the hot districts, the Northern District in California, see what kind of court proceedings are happening. Um, I'm, I mean, literally it was dozens of cases in two weeks. Um, so it's, it's, it's the wild west right now. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch the jurisprudence evolve in this area. Um, it always is whenever it's a cutting edge new technology. I mean, we see that with CRISPR. We're going to see that with this here too as well. So, so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about monetization because that really is a crucial topic for anyone who's looking to leverage generative AIs. Can you talk to us a little bit about how businesses and individuals develop sound monetization strategies when working with AI chat and similar technologies? And can you give us some best practices or examples that can guide them through this process? Yeah, so the business model you use is going to vary a lot depending on the, the field or the application that you're in. Um, it could be reimbursement in the healthcare space for a better diagnostic and therapeutic to an advertising model or subscription model uh, for a consumer-related field. Uh, the key with any business is finding the market need or demand that's willing to pay for that solution. So, so some examples um, that I can think of are, are like OpenAI that charges users for API access to the most recent chatbots, such as GPT-4. You can use the, the, the less current ones for free. Um, or for larger partnerships, folks like Meta, um, they only charge companies using Llama once they're over a certain market cap. And then you have folks um, like Aukin who are using a federated data model where the data remains on the servers um, as the algorithms and only the predictive models travel between the servers. And the goal of that is to be able to have a benefit from a larger pool of data, uh, resulting in better machine learning performance and, and still maintaining uh, data ownership and privacy. Lastly, I think from the, the academic perspective, there's a lot of data on university campuses that's unpublished. And so if we can figure out some way to incentivize generating rights clear databases and, and assessing an access fee to 
use some of that data to generate a model. I, I think that's another viable business model for for those in the the university community. So, John, I wanted to ask you from your experience, you know, you've seen various technologies emerge and evolve. How does the impact of generative AIs compare to other technological advancements in recent history? For example, what sets them apart and what lessons do you think we can draw from the past to help better embrace this exciting and probably challenging future? So I actually, when I was thinking about this question, uh, I, I took a more historical perspective. And I'll start at a high level and say there's there's really two main types of innovation that I, I've seen. Process innovations tend to result in less employment. And there's product innovations that are the development of entirely new products, uh, which tend to increase employment. Um, current generative AIs have the potential to rival a lot of technologies, especially something like Google, in terms of accessing the world's knowledge. So if I look back at a couple points in history for technological advancement, uh, and I'll make some comparisons there. Um, the Industrial Revolution was really the first one I looked at, and that's where we went from using hands to machines. There's the Second Industrial Revolution, which is roughly from the post-Civil War timeframe to somewhere in World War I, where we saw lots of innovation in steel, iron, rail, communications, petroleum, internal combustion engines, uh, fertilizer. And then I'll say the information age and the boom of the tech industry from, say, the 80s to the early 2000s, and now AI. And, and the thing that's common with all of those huge shifts in innovation uh, is a, a redefinition of property rights in some way or another, right? So if you look at the first industrial revolution, they had the creation of private property rights in the form of enclosure, but they gave legal protection for contracts and private property, and it's a move that took some of the risk out of investing capital. If you look at the second industrial revolution, there was antitrust policy that was developed in response to changes in the scale of industry due to the presence of new technologies. If you look at the uh, information age and the tech industry and the internet, there was a, a large fight over the legality of you know, Google's efforts to digitize and make searchable libraries of books that were still under copyright. Um, and with AI, we're now just beginning to see the changes in property rights. The cases are starting to get in the court. There's not a lot of firm decisions yet. Um, but also the courts and governments have to be able to respond quickly to changing technology in a very effective way. And one way you can do this, I think, is you know promoting awareness and understanding to the general public for responsible use and innovation and awareness of, of ethical issues such as bias. So I think our brains are a little bit struggling. It's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance, um, whether technology is changing too fast or too slow. I mean, recently, if you, if you look at broadband, uh, I think something like 40% of rural areas lack access to broadband compared to 4% for urban areas. And then you have problems apps are designed to solve are, are not necessarily problems for that 40% of the population or they're a benefit to a limited slice of the population. Um, I don't think being able to get a reservation at the push of a button in a rural part of the U.S. is a major concern for most people. Um, I think it was Peter Peter Thiel who said, we wanted flying cars and instead we got 140 characters uh, when we we're thinking about the future, what it would look like, you know. <laughs> so generative AI, can it's, it's breeding innovation. It's paving the way for new business models and applications. 
I think it'll have a huge impact on society um, and businesses, just as the internet did. The pace is incredible. So if you look back even, uh, I know it's hard to remember pre-pandemic things, but early 2020, um, <clears throat> AI could be used for simpler tasks like spam detection. Maybe you could auto-complete one line of code. And in the three years since then, it's only been three years, uh, we have multi-line generation of code. We can generate drafts of text. AI is able to pass the bar exam, do product mockups, generate art and photography. There's even some 3D and video models out there now. Um, and in the next few years, we may be at a point where the AI final drafts are, are better than many professionals in some fields. Video games and movies could be like a choose-your-own-adventure book. It's a personalized experience. So I'm pretty excited. Yeah, it's going to be really fascinating to watch. And like you said, the pace at which everything is going, the incredible speed is just, it's uh, just uh, amazing. And I want to go back to something you mentioned just briefly in your answer. You, you mentioned ethics. Let's talk about the potential ethical and societal implication of generative AI. So as these technologies become more prevalent, what do you see as the main ethical considerations and how do you think we can address them to better ensure responsible AI development and usage? Yeah, the first and foremost thing I think of is, is the perpetuation of bias. Um, AI is great, but it can't tell if the connection you're making is appropriate or not. The false narratives, AI is great at, at looking you straight in the face and telling you something that's completely false and you have to be able to detect that. Um, there's the, the intentional randomization. So that's basically, um, the answers change, even though the prompt is the same. Um, and, and then you look at cases like, you know, Henrietta Lacks, um, where there's informed consent issues. Um, you know, Henrietta Lacks' cells were harvested in the early fifties when it wasn't illegal to do that. Um, but I, I th they just settled the case with Thermo Fisher. They just settled it. Yep. Yeah, it was, uh, the, you know, the, basically they, the court saw that it was the company unjustly enriched itself off of Lax's cells. And then if you look at copyright and fair use, um, we also need to consider displacement of workers, right? Look at the Hollywood writer's strike. And we want to need to provide training to people whose jobs may become obsolete because of generative AI. Give them opportunities to come up with alternative careers that can enhance their careers. Um. You know, AI also lowers the cost of content creation that helps businesses, but it also helps threat actors who can easily be more uh, modify existing content to create these deep fakes. It's really hard to identify digitally altered media right now. It can closely mimic the original and it's hyper personalized. Um, here at Stanford, we do have a responsible AI group, which helps researchers with a variety of resources and communities that are available at Stanford. Uh, list the relevant policies that apply on campus when you're working with generative AI. And if you have got questions, there's a help desk set up if you're feeling uncertain. So those are some of the things I, I think you need to think about. Now, John, I wanted to ask you, as we look towards the future, what challenges and opportunities do you foresee for universities such as Stanford in terms of tech transfer and collaborating with AI industry? And are there any exciting partnerships or maybe initiatives in the works that you have there that you can maybe share with us? Yeah, happy to talk about that a little bit. So I think right now we're seeing a little less risk in some life science applications. And I say less risk because, you know, there's been a lot of crystallography databases and structured databases available for 
decades, you know, at least a decade, uh, as long as that info in the database is factual. That's the biggest if there is. Um, and, and big data reveals statistical correlations that are not always indicative of the causal relationships that the people in the physical sciences are often seeking. So designing that physical system that leverages a certain phenomenon in new ways is a, a much more difficult challenge. Um, they require AI or machine learning systems to, to accurately predict how the physical phenomena is going to be affected by changes that are not prominent in the experimental data or not included in the experimental data on which AI models have been trained. So that's that's a, a challenge there as well. Um, and then securing the permissions to license data sets companies for training and validation of these AI models. The other thing I'm seeing, and I have been seeing for a few years, um, huge opportunities for us in tech transfer. There's a lot of potential for disclosures in AI to come from departments and, and schools that aren't traditional high disclosures uh, as much as the traditional STEM fields. I've actually seen some disclosures come in from, you know, anthropology departments oh, wow. looking at AI techniques. Very cool. Yeah, looking at AI techniques to find uh, survivors of a natural disaster or um, some kind of transportation disaster based on historical data of, you know, egress paths they took when they were walking out of their forest fire uh, of past tragedies. Oh, wow. Like earthquakes where they're looking to find people who might be trapped under rubble or something like that. Exactly. I can't really mention any particular partnerships yet, but I, I'll talk about two industrial affiliates programs here we have at Stanford. One is focused on uh, human-centered artificial intelligence, and its goal is to advance research, education, policy, and practice to improve human lives. Um, it's led by faculty from multiple departments, and it's inspired by human intelligence. So studying, forecasting, and guiding human and societal impact of AI. Um, the students and the folks in the Institute are, are looking at a range of AI fundamentals and perspectives. Um, and then they're also doing a lot of policy work that is helping to foster regional and national discussions that are leading to uh, some legislative impact. So that's a really exciting um, industrial affiliates program here at Stanford. And the second one would be uh, the System X Alliance. And there's a number of industrial firms that are partnering with Stanford to look at ubiquitous sensing, computing, and communication with embedded intelligence um, through any interest they may have or through, honestly, through interest of the researchers. The, the companies just want exposure to the research that's happening. So those are two I would point to. Well, thank you very much for sharing those. And, you know, one topic we haven't talked about yet is education. And education obviously plays such a crucial role in understanding and embracing these AI technologies. John, how do you think universities and research institutions can better prepare their students and researchers to work with generative AIs? And what do you think are the key skills and knowledge areas they should focus on? Yeah, I think first and foremost, uh, educating students on how to responsibly integrate generative AI into their work and their studies and the responsible training and use of AI models. That responsibility extends even further than that. We're lucky at Stanford. We have the Graduate School of Education, uh, which has a Stanford Accelerator for Learning, which is actually bringing AI literacy earlier to middle and high school students and teachers. One of the projects that's gotten a, a ton of interest is called CRAFT. 
um, which is a collection of resources and lesson plans available, even, like I said, for middle school and high school um, to develop some lesson plans around how AI is going to be integrated into their classrooms in the future. Um, and we've gotten some interest from, from Europe and Latin America to translate and use this content among those populations as well. Well, John, thank you so much for this really informative and very insightful conversation today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. It's my pleasure to join you as well. Thanks for having me. That's going to bring us to the end of this episode. We've covered a lot of ground today discussing generative AI, focusing on how to use and monetize these technologies. Thank you, John, for sharing your experience. We've learned a lot about the strengths and challenges of generative AI, the importance of ethical considerations, and how to develop a solid monetization strategy. As we move forward in this rapidly evolving landscape, keep in mind the need for ongoing learning, responsible use of AI, and adaptability. Whether you're an entrepreneur, creator, or part of a research institution, the potential for generative AI is vast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the air. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. 